Osiris. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Eve Barzillet, perhaps best known as the front person and driving force behind Clem Snide, the acclaimed Americana band that emerged from the turn-of-the-century Boston music scene. After 20-plus years and many twists and turns, Eve continues his work with Clem Snide, having carved out a unique path as a working musician. More recently, he launched A Life in Song with Clem Snide, a new podcast where listeners share tales from their personal lives, and Eve writes an original song based on their story in return. Eve joined me from his new home on Cape Cod for a lively and insightful discussion. Enjoy. I'd rather you not see my room. It's, uh, it's very unpleasant to look at right now. I just moved it's just, you'd think there's something wrong with me if you saw the room that I'm <laughs> speaking to you from right now. So. All right, that's fair. Where'd you move to? Where are you? Where are you based? I was living in, uh, me and the family, I got wife, two kids. We were living in Nashville, Tennessee for the last 18 years. But we came from New York, and we both lived in Boston before then. I don't ask you why. It's kind of a mystery to me, too. But it's somehow, we're now living in Cape Cod. We moved to the Cape. Wow. Um, yeah. My wife, it was like a dream of hers, I think, for a long time. She just live on the Cape because she, she loved it. I hadn't really been to the Cape much. You know, I've been to, like the joke I make is that I'd only been to the Cape twice before. And one time I was on acid, took acid when I was like 19. Or like, and the second time I had COVID. So, you know, it was hard to get a clear sense of what it was like <laughs> on the Cape, but I just went for it. You'd love somebody enough to go wherever they go, as the song said. So here we are on the Cape. So we've only been here like a few weeks. And yeah, so I'm, I'm just starting a, a whole new life in a way. Yeah, so it's cool. I mean, I'm on the road a lot. So in some sense, it doesn't really matter where I live and like wherever. I, yeah, if you travel enough, you, yeah, you just get this like this disjointed or disassociated sense of yourself anyway. So, yeah. I think you and I share something in common, which is we've both experienced psychedelics on the Cape. And I'm really <laughs> happy to bond with you over that. <laughs> we, both, we both made love at midnight in the dunes, yeah, right? That's right. Yeah, there were definitely, I don't know if there were pina coladas involved, though. <laughs> bellies, uh, pina coladas sloshing around in our bellies. My family used to own a house in Falmouth and I, I lived in New York. I, I grew up outside of New Haven, so I'm, I know that neck of the woods. Yeah, I was going to ask if your psychedelic experience on the Cape was maybe heightened in some way because you're on the Cape, because the Cape is kind of oh, yeah. like a magic. Yeah, there's a magical quality to the Cape, for sure. For sure. And some of the things I like about it, if you haven't experienced these things yet, is October. All the people go away, but you still get beautiful days and beautiful evenings and the sunsets get even more intense. But I also love the dead of winter. I used to like to just go up there like once a month and see it all the different times of the year. And that sort of gray, wet time by the seaside 
You could pretend maybe you're in like South England or something. It's just quiet. And the locals, you know, it's a little weird if you roll into a local bar or even the grocery store. I think you're going to dig it. I think you're in for an interesting first year there. No, that's great to hear, man. Yeah, I hope, hope so. I, this is the house, like the house we got is, is it needs a little bit of work. It's almost like camping in a way. It's almost like staying at like your grandparents' old cabin. Like it's got that kind of a vibe to it a little bit. It's really small and it's hot. You know, there's like no air conditioning. So I feel like, yeah, this weird feelings of being like a child at my grandparents' house, you know, and it's hot. But then, yeah, we go, we can go to the beach and, uh, and watch the sun go down. I've never lived near the beach, so I can just go to the beach, you know, whenever I wanted like that. That's pretty amazing. It's healing. It's very healing. I feel, yeah, I feel very healthy. But when you do the air, it just feels like just cleaner, fresher, you know. You swing a hammer? You're going to do that? You're going to do the work yourself? No, I'm not. I'm not that cool. I'm not that cool, man. You know, I was never really cut out to be a homeowner. So I usually take on like more than I can handle. I, you know, I can do a little bit of stuff here and there, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not hand. You know, I'm an artist. I got a delicate artist. Not that I feel above that work. Also, I'm not precise like that. Yeah. People that do it, they're real precise. Like I'm real, I'm real like fuzzy, man. I don't, I hate doing like precision work like that. I just like to kind of go for it. that's always the trouble with those projects too like it's all about the finishing touches man like you don't want a bookcase that's like crooked (laughs) not right (laughs) yeah it's not the opposite of trying to make art or whatever you're trying to create something more abstract but it is it's not abstract at all it's like the opposite of abstract it's very real so you gotta like do things the right way you have to measure things and you have to know and you have to have like tools and you have to be organized and you have to have room to do it you can't just show and be like ah, i'm just taking this out you know you go. And, and that like the methodical sort of now and then you need to do it you need some experience so like if you want to like experiment on your own house then all right go for it that's a terrifying <laughs> there's no way to. <laughs> and then and then i'm like i just want to get on the road man i don't want to mess around with this crap man i just want to be playing shows you know well, we found a guy who was cool, a contractor, and he's, uh, you know, he's started to do some work here and there. So, yeah, so it'll just take some time. Usually in these conversations, we do them kind of like a profile style where we start at the beginning and work our way forward. But if you're up for it, I sort of wanted to start in the last couple of years because, well, first of all, you've got a lot of interesting stuff going on, and I'm just intrigued to talk about some of it. I'd love to talk about the home shows you were doing for a while. My intuition is that, well, I guess, and you said it in the introduction to your podcast, which we'll get to as well, but the home shows seem to have struck something in you in terms of being closer to people and being closer to their stories in the way that maybe you're not with a typical audience in a club or a theater or what have you. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Like, how did you come to be doing those kinds of shows and what did they do for you? Well, as an artist, I mean, I ended up doing hope shows mostly just out of the sets because, yeah, I, I had Clemside was a sort of a functioning indie touring indie band for upwards of ten years, which is pretty good. To keep a band going, like it never quite was profitable on the road, and so eventually, eventually, it all just bottomed out, and my, I, I lost my booking agent. You know, like if you don't have a, a booking agent and you can like a label, that kind of, I didn't have, like I lost all that. So I had, so it was just me. But amazingly enough, that's when all that Kickstarter stuff 
was the happiness was like around 2010, something like that. And Bobby Bear, actually, I should give Bobby Bear Jr. credit. He was doing home shows. Connor, I should give also credit to Dave Bazan, the Pedro the Lion guy, because I think he actually started, I mean, whenever people were playing in people's houses, like forever, but in that way as like a, as like an actual business model. And then there's this undertow was this agency that formed in his wake. And so I kind of got in on that at some point. Like the thing you realize, like if you know you do these home shows and you sell tickets, and if you do them by yourself, and it cuts out like a lot of the middlemen, and you maybe ask a little bit more for a ticket. Anyway, it's a good business model, and it worked. And I had like enough fans that I was able to put together these living room shows. So yeah, it's basically like my net, you know, like I fell, and that was my sort of net. So yeah, so I did that for many years. You know, that was like this tool. This year I was back in venues, and that was really the first time in ten years that I played venues. 10 years, like just in the wilderness, you know, in the desert. And then, the, so that went on for a while. Then COVID hit and COVID also, I was supposed to do a lot of touring that, at that point too. Obviously the record came out and we had gigs lined up with Ava, you know, we were putting the band together for a few shows, very excited. And then COVID wiped all that out. Well, I said, well, I can't really sell tickets anymore. So I'll just do private shows, you know? So it was more like just for the people and their family and friends and uh, do like a suggested donation kind of thing. I don't have a set fee, but yeah, it worked out great. At least initially, I think everyone had their free, whatever their stimulus checks and they're spending on Clint's not home shows. <laughs> so it was great. So I was, yeah, like right during COVID, I was like the only, I was like the only guy on tour, you know, it was me. Just, it was great. So now, now I only do private shows. I definitely have a different relationship or I don't know. I, sh- I shouldn't say that, but I, I'm guessing that, you know, as opposed to somebody who doesn't do home shows, who's much more successful, let's say like a Ben Folds, like a tour with Ben Folds. So I can say to some whatever, like certainty about what that's sort of what it looks like on that level. Yeah. You don't interact with your fans. Maybe there's a meet and greet, you know, everyone stands next to you, take a few pictures, that kind of thing. Maybe signs and stuff as you're like walking on the tour bus from the backstage door. That's about it. But for me, it was like, yeah, like I'm staying in these people's guest rooms. And the thing is when you have, and when you have the home show, like you're, you tend to have people more often than not opened up to me and would tell me, kind of bare their souls to me a little bit. And I loved it. I'm like, I love those kind of conversations. Those are the best conversations. You know, when you, somebody that you don't really know, like just reveals themselves to you in just a very honest, just this is me and this is what's fucked up about me and this is what's you know i'm afraid of and and yeah it was like it was definitely inspiring and also while all this is happening i'm also writing songs for people you know i'm doing like the personal songs like i this is how i've survived more or less just barely the last 10 years is yeah i sell my my shows to private people for the most part and then i also write them songs so yeah, so over the last 10 years, I've been yeah, very fortunate to be able to interact with other people, granted they're fans, you know, so maybe a lot of it does, maybe that sort of paints it, but I don't think so. I think that just gives them the sort of, maybe that's what sparks the urge to bear their hearts and souls to me. And yeah, especially if I'm like, oh yeah, bear your heart and soul to me, and maybe I'll write you a song, because that stuff is very inspiring. It, uh, like when people give you that, because every person is unique, you know, there is no, like you as an individual living sort of human being is your story. Like it's, yeah, maybe it's very similar to some other people's and maybe you look like a few other dudes, whatever, but be that as it may, you're still 
completely and utterly unique. Nothing in the entire history of the universe that's been exactly like you. So, yeah, if you frame it that way, then like everybody has a story to tell. And yeah, maybe it's not a very exciting story. Maybe it's a sad story, whatever. But it's like a story. It's it's real. So, you know, because I've been doing this for a long time, always looking for this point. I need, you know, I need like some of that raw kind of material to kind of work with. You know, that's that's what that's what I find works works good for me. Do you write on demand? Like, can you summon it? Is the story the inspiration and then you just sit down and get going? Or like, how laborious and complex is it for you? It's not that hard to, for me. You know, I guess it does kind of, especially now, I've been doing it for a long time. I don't really like wrestle with it too much. I'm just like, oh yeah, I'll just do this. And yeah, that was, that's the funny thing about writing songs. When I do these personal songs, I mean, sometimes people will ask for like, just stupid shit that like has no business being in a song, you know? Like ideally, they just bear their heart and soul to me, and I and I just I become them. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, sometimes I'll sing at them, but usually I sing as them, or how I feel, how they make me feel, and then I take their words and I just put them in the song. They're already given me like if they do it right, they give me good words. Then the song kind of writes itself. You know, I, so I try to play every day, so I always have some things going, some song that's. So then that float, the two things start like floating into each other and then boom, there's some, there's definitely certain templates that I'll use. And, and there's definitely like three or four that are, if you listen to them, back to back. I mean, I've written hundreds, you know what I'm saying? I'm not that good. So, you know, I will repeat myself on occasion. I think it's harder for me. It's harder for me not to write something than to write something. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's like this itch that I just sort of, sort of scratch. I just need to keep scratching. I appreciate you doing the process answer. I'm self-conscious asking you sometimes, but because it seems like a little bit of an obvious question, but it's always fascinating to talk to a creative person and to get that perspective. I don't want to assume that listeners know entirely where we're going next in terms of what we're going to talk about life and song. So life and song is a podcast you started. It takes this idea of you receiving someone's story having them tell you their story, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise, humorous, tragic, whatever it is, sharing some authentic piece of themselves with you and you channeling that as inspiration for a song you give back to them at the end of the podcast. Is that sort of a fair summation or do you say it differently? No, that was good. I need to get you to write my copy. (laughs) We'll talk about that later. I'll have my agent call you. Yeah, so I had... I had the idea and it sort of kicked in during that initial COVID period when I was looking for something to do. So yeah, I just asked people if they'd be cool, talk to me kind of like we're doing over a Zoom or Zencast or whatever. And I just record, record them telling their story. And then I, and then I do a lot of editing. Like in my mind, I want it to be almost more like cinematic. You know, I wanted to score it because I like doing that stuff. It's fun to do on the logic. But I can't really make a record that way because I think it'll sound too shitty. But it's just shitty enough for a podcast. But you know what I'm saying? But there's like you can, there's so many cool sounds on Logic, and you can do so much that it's I love messing around with it. But I got to put it into something useful. So this was kind of ideal. So I would like get these people to tell their stories and then and score it, and then yeah, and then write them a song. For me, the song was like the last least important part. I, mean, I got real focused on the scoring in my. And my manager's like, that's not that important. I'm like, all right, whatever. Anyway, I solicited people. I just invited people to tell me and send a little email about what their story was. 
And we just started these conversations. And it took us a fair bit of work to put one of these together. But I, you know, I like having something to do, but I get a little cagey if I don't have anything to do. And yeah, we got some, we got some really cool stories, you know. I, I mean, I'm trying to get, obviously, like the more intense, the more intense the story, the better. Or just to get a sense of someone's life, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a story, but there needs to be, yeah, there needs to be some kind of like beginning, middle, and an end or something, you know. We've kind of danced around the idea of what the person's source story can be, but I'm curious as to, um, like, what do you look for? What elements need to be there to resonate for you? And I, and I think beyond like structure, like you said, you know, it needs a beginning, middle and end. Like I get that, that there, that you have to find the arc, but what, what strings and you have to be pulled for you to say, okay, I can work with this one. A good story I realized is when someone, like every story is basically like a good, a good person going through a bad experience and then coming out on the other side and like, how, what did they learn or how were they transformed by life? That's every, like, every story, basically that. And so the ones that, that express that clearly work better, for sure. Yeah, like some people tell a good story. They just have a natural sense of how to, how to time it or how to you know, let the whole thing kind of unfold. And then some people just skip over the important parts and just... So yeah, like sometimes I'd have a conversation with somebody and it just didn't, it didn't come together. But more often than not, it, it did come together. But you know, some people are just kind of dull, right? Some people are more funnier and they put more pizzazz into their, just the way they talk. You know, you can't have somebody who's like a performer. That's the thing. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get someone who's like a, yeah, like a comedian or like a professional storyteller. That's another thing I realized about it throughout the process, you know, that we flirted the ideas of trying to get some like what more well known people would get the podcast, like. Give it some juice, man. Juice it up a bit with some celebs. I'm not, I get it. I'll play the game. I got to live in this world too. But then I realized that like part of what makes it work, if it even does, is that you don't know the person. You don't even know their last name. It's just like Michael or Joshua. And then you just hear their story. And you know what I'm saying? Like if you knew who they were, I think it would almost, it might not, it might not work. I would think for a lot of publicly known people, they have outlets to tell their stories. They don't always get to be in control of how it's presented. But yeah, it's interesting. You know, as, I, as I've been doing this, we've had this podcast for about two and a half years now. We've got you know a little over 120, 130 episodes now. And I've arrived in a similar place, which is most people, if you meet them with some sort of openness, have a story, like have a story that's worth hearing. And they don't have to be someone of prior public note. Everyone goes through things. And, you know, these last couple of years in particular have been great for having conversations because people have needed to talk, wanted to talk, needed to connect. And it's something I've gotten out of doing the podcast was it. I think that I'm not sure how without it. Well, that would be a little dramatic to say, but I would just say it made the COVID experience not as bad as it could have been. <laughs> yeah, you know. Sure. We'll be back with more Spotlight On presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. I the other thing I'm curious about, I guess along those same lines, like what are you getting out of it other than just inspiration and raw material? Is it more is there other fulfillment that is coming from this? I think like being creative, it's a bit like a muscle and you got to keep it you kind of keep it tight. That's the thing I realized when I started doing the personal songs, I realized that the more songs I wrote, 
like the more songs I wrote for other people, I also wrote more songs for myself. Like I was just writing more. Like it just opened the portal. Like I, I was, I was narrow. I was narrow for a long time. Not narrow, but you know, I'd say the first I've been doing it since the late nineties. So from like, yeah, the first 10 or 12 years of doing it in Clemson, I mean, yeah, like that, I sort of hit the wall and everything bottomed out. And so I had to not necessarily change it, but I had to just like, just, I had to kind of blow it open. You know, I had to like kick the doors, open the windows and just let a bunch of shit in like without thinking about it. But that's how I was able to, yeah, re- renew it. Like I've had to renew it like every decade. It needs to be like brought back to life somehow. I think so the more I did it, the more I did it. And so you're asking what I get from it. And like I said, I don't have, like, I don't have a job. I haven't had like a job a long time. A job is in a sense to do this. I like being busy. Like I need stuff to like when I'm working on something and I'm in it, whatever it is. And I've worked on all kinds of stuff. Like I've scored movies. I've done like ads, made a bunch of records. I've written personal songs, whatever it is. Like if I'm in it and it's working, that feels really good. You know? So I live for that feeling. Like if I don't get that feeling for a long time, I get depressed. Like I don't know how people live life without it. That's, that's my take. I don't know the people just live like these regular short lives and I envy them in a way. I don't, I'm like, God damn it. What the fuck do I have to do? This? And I set myself up that I have to do it. I depend like my family depends on. It. So it's the stakes are real. Like if the stakes aren't real, I know I've known people over the years. Yeah. Or do it like you could just do it as a more like a hobby or like a weekend warrior kind of thing. And yeah, man, that's great. But for me, I've set it up such that. Like I've set the bark and high for myself, you know, like I have to. And sometimes I'm like, God damn, why did I do that? And I wish I hadn't done that. But then ultimately I like it. If you want to be really, if you want to be really good at something, you have to go all in. Like you just have to, and it might not even really succeed in the end. And, but I think you will. Like I think you succeed in, in as much as you're meant to succeed. Yeah. You just keep doing it. It just becomes what it is supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? The only time, like the only time it's you fail at it is when you accept failure. You go, right, that's it. I've hit the end of the line with this like, time to do something else. And a lot of people do that. That's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's very sensible, but I still, I wouldn't let, I didn't give myself that option. The idea of no plan B is pretty powerful, especially in a creative field. But I wonder also something you did that you started to touch on it's this idea of like success as some kind of objective measurement external as opposed to your own definition of success are you successful well i mean you can't separate the two like the external like you need some validation again it's all it all depends on how you structure your life yeah it all depends on what angle you're looking at from you know you can interpret it in many different ways there's always somebody above you comment that guy's playing bigger rooms and he's got a bigger bus a lot of dudes way above me for sure, but then there's a lot of dudes way below me too, you know? So I've stopped trying to even think of it in those terms. If anything, the break, the breakthrough I had, I would say quite a journey for me, but when everything went to ship for Clemside, for me, especially, and I lost my house and I had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, this is like back in 2010, 11. And yeah, like I was 40, it was just turned 40. I had the wife and two small kids and I had no money and I just lost my house. And everything that I've worked on since like my mid twenties had come to nothing. That's what I, that was like the reality that I was confronting at that time. But I swear, like they were but for the grace of God, like miracles. In some sense, I like to get a little, yeah, like 
um, magical, like magical shit has happened to me. So in some sense, I, yeah, I don't, I'd like to think of the whole experience more as a, like a magical journey, not like a career. If you're going into it as a career, just stop, you know, cause it's no kind of career. I mean, you really, you have to be kind of insane. I think you have to be so unreasonable. <laughs> like if you're a reasonable person and most people are, and most people aspire to be, then it's not going to work for you. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just an idiot. So I've had to surrender. Like I, yeah, like I, the whole experience for me, I think it's been a lesson in surrender to God. I say God, whatever, you know, that, that mean, whatever that means, you know what I'm saying? Some people, like that, that's a useful word to use. I surrender to just to surrender, like what they do in AA, just surrender. Like that's what has happened to me. And when I did that, miraculous things happened. And I was also very bitter. You know, I, I definitely went through a period where I was very bitter pissed off and going through all kinds of nasty business divorces ex-managers i mean it's a terrible business it's terrible i had no idea what i was doing i signed this i gave this guy that i mean it was like a big mess so i had to kind of wade through all that that took years you know god help me so yeah there's definitely points where i was like what the? like i didn't even you know i just had no idea what to do so i surrendered I surrendered to god and wouldn't you know it Something always, something would just come out of nowhere, like weird things, like large sums of money would just fall from the sky, like just out of nowhere. A Google ad, just using some obscure piece of music that I put out on GarageBand 10 years ago, and here's six figures. Okay, like that kind of stuff has happened to me, you know, and it happens right when I need it. <laughs> so I've really come to, to believe that there's just some larger there's some larger forces at play and I'm just, I'm like some avatar in somebody's insane, like very complicated virtual reality kind of game. That's my life has felt like that to me. There's a lot in there and I recognized a lot of the language you were using. I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I was thinking about that earlier when you were talking about surrender, but there are other things you said that I was, it was, it was, it was definitely like, you know, I recognize these notions from that same work. Again, you didn't say it explicitly, but the notion of hitting a bottom, of surrendering, of being open to being the receiver or the receptacle for the miracle, I guess you will. It's really, it's fascinating. And those are, that's just one modality, right? I'm sure you could talk to people from other traditions and that is a constant. It's, it's not unique yeah. to any one path. There's something else about the podcast that I'm going to go on a little bit of a limb and try to tie it to something else you work on. And that is, I hear in the work of the podcast, there's an element of interpretation, right? You're taking someone's story and generating a new work of art with it. And there's, you're interpreting their story through your sort of artistic lens. I'm really intrigued by artists like you who embrace cover songs, you know, some to the extent you have of putting out an album of covers but who include covers in their sets long past you know when they have plenty of their own material or who maybe are known for a particular iconic cover or what have you but i guess i won't ask you to comment on my notion that it's uh, that's also another form of interpretation because that's a little shallow but i'm wondering like in the, as it relates to your work with cover songs and playing other people's music what what is that about for you and and what are you learning about songs when you make a record with 10 or 12 of someone else's compositions? Like, what's that about? 
All right. So I would say back earlier, we're talking about bonding out. It went hand in hand with the personal songs. Initially, it was like, oh, give me a cover song. Give me like three to choose from. I'll do one. You know what I'm saying? It was the same kind of, maybe a slightly less expensive rewards tier of cover. Yeah. So initially it was like fan chosen covers. It was like, oh, another way to connect with the fans. Yeah. Tell me what song. And people would suggest songs that never, you know, so it was, a, no, it was like an exercise. So yeah. So a lot of it was an exercise in, in trying to cover a song that I would never think to cover or that, that somebody, you know, like some dude with an acoustic guitar, you know, has no business trying to play. And yeah, I think it helped me, it helped me a lot. I think another thing that helped me just find my way back into it and just widen my, my sensibilities or just widen. It's really easy. I think the thing about, yeah, the thing I realized about writing songs, whatever, it probably applies to all sorts of creative work, but that you, it's very easy to fall into a rut, you know, where you just make the same few moves because it feels good. And then, you know what I'm saying? And it's easy to just stay there. And so it's good to have something that just forces you out of that. And so I got to spend, yeah, I got to spend like an hour trying to figure out how to play like, you know, whatever, like a Madonna song or something. And then how would I do it? Like I'm forced to do it. I can't do it the way she does. Like I never try to, I'm never <laughs> like when people cover a song and they make it sound like it does, like the original, that's like a blast for me. Like, why would you ever want to do that? That's horrible to me. Like those kind of cover band, tribute bands or something. That's like a kind of hell. I met the guy when I went to Berkeley, had a guy come in. It was like in Van Halen tribute band. And, uh, and I just felt so bad for this guy. I don't look like Eddie Van Halen. Play just our age. <laughs> Where are you going to go with that? Anyway, sorry, I'm getting off track. But doing the covers, another way that, to just get me outside of myself. Yeah. I think, yeah, ultimately, that's what I was trying to do. Get outside yourself. Get outside of your notions that you have about yourself. Those don't necessarily help you. It's better to like not know who you are and just be open. Two interrelated questions. One is, do you recognize a difference between like high and low art? You know, like I'll use the sort of hack example. So do you have some journey covers, right? People love journey. Journey is an iconic band, but they're also maybe there's a certain, maybe in the indie rock community, they're not taken seriously, right? There's people who laugh at journey. When you play a journey song, are you sincere in the moment or are you, are you winking? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't make any distinction between songs. Like what, some pavement song is cooler than Journey of Pavement? It's unbearable for me to listen to. I don't even, I may have thought like that when I was younger, but now I find that that sort of, yeah, like you're authenticating this music because it's, but I get it. Like, yeah, like my take on Journey obviously is, is a kind of ironic, like indie inversion of it in a way, but there's no other way I could have done it. So it's not like, oh yeah, I could do it. I could sing it like Steve Perry does, but I choose to sing it. But I, I can't even, I can't even go anywhere near the way he's singing it. But that's like another universe for me. I mean, at the time it was, again, I didn't put much thought into it. It was chosen by those guys at the AV club. And so I just worked out a version of it on the youth because I was playing a lot of stuff on the youth at that time. So a lot of it is, yeah, like I don't, I try not to, especially with the covers. Yeah. Like someone else tells me to do one and then I just do it. Sometimes it's funny bringing that up and I'll take this conversation in this direction. But yeah, like I've been around for a long time, I'm 52. And so I remember the 90s quite well. Like I was there for it all, man. I saw Nirvana like in a fucking club with 12 other people. So I went through that whole, and then I came to Boston in 1989 and, and there was such, 
there was such a pressure to like, there's like, you had to like the Belgian Underground, the Stooges, the New York Dolls, and MC5, maybe like, you know what I'm saying? Like that was it, you know, and you had to like have your heart. It was, it was so stifling. It was like looking back at it, it's almost like, it was like living in the Soviet Union or something. There was this pressure to be like authentic in that kind of indie way. And then, you know, all the bands that started getting major label deals. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to even think about it now. Back then, like that was, I mean, I lived in Boston and you'd listen to the college stations and the DJs would just be just like livid. Rage that like Sonic Youth has betrayed, you know, the indie gods and has signed with the major label. I like thinking about uh, authenticity. It's fun to to think about it because, in some sense, it, I think you know how that question goes all the way down to the very bottom. You know, like yeah, who are you? Right? Who is the real you exactly? Like, do you know that is your? Yeah, you have an idea of who you are, but. In the deeper sense, you don't know. You're like the most complicated thing there ever was. It's like your consciousness is eternal. So in some sense, if you're trying to be your most authentic self, that question is not that easy to answer. It's funny because you sort of anticipated my next question or line of inquiry, which is, you know, at this stage, is Clem Snide a band or an alter ego? I don't know. It's not a band. There's just me. Yeah, so in that sense, maybe. But I, I tried to do it as Eve Barsley years ago. I thought after Clemson sort of fell apart, I thought it'd be better to just put it all behind me and just be me, you know, Eve Barsley. Clemson always just seems to have more of a life of its own at this point. Like, it's what I say, you know, when, when, I, when I try to get private shows, you know, I say, if you care to make a donation to the Clemson Preservation Society, so yeah, it's more of like spirit. I embody the spirit of Clem Snide, whatever that yeah. may be. But uh, I know it's confusing and, and it irritates people at some point. Well, that's not the nature of my question. I was really more... I can sense the irritation in your corner. You've pushed me too far this that's time. Right. <laughs> well, it also it also strikes me as you and, <laughs> you and Clem were both painted with the most difficult brush, which was like cult favorite or critics darling or yeah which is so not true right? i think we got more bad reviews i don't i at least those are the ones i remember that the, the problem with clemstein i think looking back at it like the band you know those early records is yeah it didn't it had a bit of an identity crisis and didn't really it didn't really fit it just had two it went in too many different directions at once and it is in some sense that's what we liked about it but ultimately, yeah, it needed to be focused into something, and it just never did. It just got more unfocused until it just blew apart. I was bitter for a while, but I, looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, I didn't, that's just how it was. It wasn't. Well, I think, yeah, in a way, that maybe that's what makes it cultish, because I, I mean, you could still listen to those records, you know, like Ghost of Fashion, I think, still sounds pretty good today. I mean, as far as I can judge my own records in that sense, but it doesn't sound dated, I think, because it, because it never even knew what the hell it wanted to be. So, you know, in some ways, those kind of records are the ones that, that last longer because they, they confront the unknown. Whether they succeed in their confrontation of the unknown or not, obviously it didn't succeed too much or else it turned into something much bigger. But records that sound dated are records that just that sounded like they were supposed to sound back then. Like the stuff that sounds like not quite fit in anywhere. In some ways, the stuff's... Glass, I guess. 
the sound by design, like we were just, we, you know, we were just, it was a big mishmash and it was almost like a mishmash of people and ideas. Given how much you, you don't shy away from telling your story and from acknowledging the difficulties you went through. Is there at this stage for you, like a part of your work or your catalog that you can't revisit because it's too much associated with those times? Or have you been able to metabolize it all and, and contextualize it? You know, I try, I try to stay connected with every record, at least with one song, at least, at least one song from every record that I will continue to play. And then hopefully that sort of can keep me connected to that period, whatever myself. I prefer the stuff that I do now to the stuff I did when I was in my 20s. Like, it's not necessarily that appealing to me to go back and play those old Clemson songs. And I actually don't. Like, my set has only has maybe a few of those moments. So, yeah, like, I'm definitely more into the stuff I've done in the last, like, few years, I would say. But, but yeah, that's something I kind of struggle with. You know, I don't I'm trying to come up with a perfect set. So I can never quite figure out what the perfect set should be, but I'm trying. That's my goal right now, the perfect set. I was talking to Josh Rouse, Roush, and he told me he was opening for Nick Lowe and said Nick Lowe plays the same exact set every night. Like he's got it just timed perfect and dialed in perfect. And he knows he does all the songs you want to hear. And uh, he just, it's like, he doesn't mess with it. And like Willie, I think Willie Nelson maybe does that, maybe not quite as thing. But anyway, like those older guys, like they kind of figured it out. They got the perfect set. They just played the perfect set. It's funny you say that. I saw a Burning Spear a couple of weeks ago, and you know he hasn't toured in quite a while. And I was reading some stuff online, and fans were griping, like, oh, it's the same set he's been playing for 15, 20 years. But I'll tell you, I, you articulated exactly that. Like It wasn't like he just went and ran through the set. It wasn't like it was a perfunctory performance. It was like the platonic ideal of a Burning Spear set. <laughs> and and like, why would he fuck with it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of it, the, you know, it, the, the house was a sweaty mess of very satisfied people. So if need be, I can stretch it out. I know more than 12 songs. <laughs> I only I can only remember twelve songs at a time. Anymore than that, I just can't handle. It. You have to forget one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like the desk, my desktop. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna keep it clean. Yeah. It's, about, it's about to be very stormy here on the Cape. But listen, I gotta. I don't know. I can keep talking for a long time. No, no, no. I would much rather see you go enjoy Cape Cod. And uh, <laughs> I've had a wonderful time talking with you. And um, yeah, I really appreciate been. you making time. Oh, my pleasure, dude. Yeah, that was real nice talking to you, for sure. Thank for you. Sure. Thank you very much. And good luck getting back out on the road this year. And I hope nothing but good health and good things for you and the family. Oh, that's wonderful, man. I'll take it. Thank you. Right back at you. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Eve Barzillay, and thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you again for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Music
Osiris. <laughs> 